Welcome to the Open Pew Podcast, your home for theology from the ground up. We interview pastors, public theologians, faith leaders, and so much more. And so if you want a theology show with practical applications, this might be the one for you. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the Open Pew Podcast. We are joined today by Dr. Michael Long. Uh, Michael Long is the author of some 20 or so books, author and editor, I should say. And so I, going from that, I kind of want to let you say more about yourself as an introduction. Sure. Um, I'm still professor or associate professor of Peace and Conflict Studies and Religious Studies at Elizabethtown College. I'll be furloughed next July. Uh, and the reason stated is the Trump in student enrollment. Uh, but my primary fields... Uh, include civil rights history, LGBTQ history, uh, certainly media and culture, society and culture ethics, peace and conflict studies. Uh, and those are my primary areas of interest, as well as religion and politics. And uh, you've asked me to talk a little bit about Fred Rogers because I've authored a book called Peaceful Neighbor, Discovering the Countercultural Mr. Rogers. Uh, and I really got interested in Rogers because of his work in peace and nonviolence. And I think my memory tells me that I was watching uh, some sort of mashup of Rogers following yet another school crisis, school shooting. And when I heard him speak, this was a PSA, I believe a public service announcement that he had delivered at some point. I uh, just decided to and see whether uh, there was more substance to his views on peace and nonviolence. And sure enough, uh, I found those at his archives, at, at his a collection of his papers, at at St. Vincent College, and uh, that just led me further into his social ethics, and it took off from there. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that really impressed me about the book is um, examining it from um, you. You really do a good job of examining Mr. Rogers in his own context um, and, and kind of seeking to paint a picture of who he was in light of the world that he lived in, um, political and social. Right. I think what usually happens is that we tend to watch uh, Rogers' comments or his program or his speeches uh, online these days, and uh, there's a snippet here and a snippet there, and it's terribly unfair because if we were to understand Rogers and take him seriously and understand him fully, we really need to play him in his historical context. And so if we want to uh, understand what he's saying in 1990 about a particular shooting or violent incident, we have to understand uh, the context in which he gives that statement. And the same is true of all of his programs. Uh, to understand what he was saying in 1968 in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, we really have to understand what was going on in 1968 that he's responding to. Right. I remember someone going so far as saying, um, I remember reading one article that, that described uh, our, our leaning into his um, look for the neighbors quote. Uh, look for the name clip is almost being perverse in the look look for the helpers is what i think it is, is that am i right about that look yes, for the helpers yes yes i, I think that's wrong. what i think that's what it actually is i can't remember exactly what i said ex already um but but there being a certain perversity to that because we kind of strip it of its context and forget that he's also saying that we are to be the helpers 
Uh, yes, I think that's true. Uh, by the way, I think I have a student, Reverend Ethan Shearer. <laughs> is that correct? Well, <laughs> that that is correct. Good. I'm sorry. <laughs> Very good to hear you, young man. Oh, uh, sir, it's good quote, to see you and hear you. The quote, uh, look for the helpers, actually comes from advice that uh, Fred Rogers learned from his mother when he was a child, uh, when there would be a terrible incident uh, that happened during his childhood, his mother would uh, encourage him to look for the help. It's not just to look at the uh, horrible incident that happened and the carnage that might have taken place, but especially for those who are helping to make the incident uh, better, to make the world a better place. And Rogers also uh, took that to heart. And every time a negative incident happened, he would say the same thing. Uh, and he would use that as a way of encouraging children to look for helpers, but also as a way to encourage adults and children to be helpers themselves. So, yes. Dr. Long, one of the things that I um, was really struck by when I read the book um, was just how, I'm going to put it this way, how um, uh, all-encompassing Fred Rogers' views of peace really were. He, you know, it wasn't just, I think sometimes, and, and my memory, I'm a child of the 90s, so my memory of, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is patchy. Um, but I think sometimes we're either trained to remember it or, or accidentally remember Fred Rogers as, as really kind of talking about, well, make sure that you treat each other well and play nice and stuff like that. But one of the things that you kind of bring out in the book that I noticed is, well, Fred Rogers really saw um, his work of peace um, in kind of all aspects of the lives of young people, where he talks about um, the foods that we eat and the and the way we we inter the way we make believe, not just that we make believe, but the way we do that. And and I I think that's the part of the book that was most um, fascinating to me when when I realized, wow, I mean, Fred Rogers. Um, had such a, a holistic view of what it meant to live peacefully in the world. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I appreciate you raising that point, uh, Ethan. One of the points that I try to make in the book is that Fred Rogers was political. And that seems like a strange point to make in many ways. When we look at Fred Rogers, he doesn't look political, whatever political might look like. But he also has this uh, reputation for being a who focused primarily on feelings. And indeed, there's no doubt about that. If you compare Mr. Rogers' neighborhood to Sesame Street, you'll see that Sesame Street focuses a lot on numbers and on uh, basic educational lessons like that. Whereas Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood focuses a lot on emotions and feelings, on developing our feelings and emotions in healthy and constructive ways. And so when we look at his piecework with children, we can really see that what he's trying to do is encourage children to express their emotions openly, but to do it in a way that doesn't hurt themselves and others, right? So he has a really psychological part about him that we can't ever forget. It's front and center in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. 
So he's trying to get these children to channel their emotions properly. And in this sense, he's really Freudian. He's all about channeling emotions in healthy and constructive ways. Now, I take that and I put that in its social context and I come out saying that he's political. And I do that because if you look at those, his focus on emotion in its context, you will say that he see that he's addressing wider issues in this very psychological way. So, for example, in 1968, when the program debuts nationally, he has a focus on the issue of war. It's unbelievable. At, on one hand, in that first week, he's talking with children about how to deal with their feelings of fear. No doubt about that. On the other hand, he specifically and directly addresses the issue of war. And he, and he, tells, a pro he tells his uh, viewers, war is not nice. Now, he's doing this in 1968 during the height of the Vietnam War conflict, right? So he's making a statement in that first week about his politics. And his politics are deeply anti-war. He does it in part by addressing the fear that's related to war. He's addressing the fear of children specifically and the fear that is rooted in warlike behavior. And he's suggesting that warmongering often happens because of these ungrounded fears that we have. And it's absolutely brilliant. And you can do this with many issues. You're right. Uh, Rogers had a really holistic view of peace. For him, peace is not only the essence of conflict, as we say, but it's also the presence of justice. And he looks at justice in terms of the way we deal with the environment, in terms of the way we deal with animals, in terms of the way we deal with people um, of different races and ethnicities from our own. So he has a really holistic view, and I'm glad you pointed that out, Ethan. So as I said, it, it's kind of, uh, I might use the phrase, a happy accident that I, uh, that I connected with you when I did, because I sent you the email last week. Uh, after I had preached a sermon using Mr. Rogers, um, Fred Rogers, as a uh, as an illustration, um, and a few days after I initially contacted you, the trailer dropped for the uh, new film "Won't You Be My Neighbor," starring Tom Hanks. Um, and so I kind of that was kind of just uh, like I said, a happy accident, a really convenient uh, time timing thing. Um, and then in addition to that, I've also recently interviewed two other peacemakers, um, Michael Martin and Shane Claiborne, um, who, who do a lot of work with uh, currently their, one of their projects is uh, uh, Raw Tools, which is a sort of beating down handguns and other uh, weapons into garden tools. Um, and so you, you'll kind of be a prelude into those conversations um, for the next month or so. Um, and so the thing I the thing I kind of wanted to, to discuss uh, the the first thing that I want to bring up, and then we'll get into a wider conversation on uh, Christian nonviolence, Christian pacifism, whatever title we want to use. Um, I want to talk about I want to talk about the the Tom Hanks movie uh, because I'm sure I'm sure given your history of working on uh, the Jackie Robinson movie, for instance, uh, I'm sure you have some sort of an opinion on this. Or I'd like to think so. I do. Uh, obviously, I haven't seen the film yet. It hasn't come out. I did see the documentary. Uh, I appreciated that in many 
my main concern about impossibly the film is a, maybe a distinctively Protestant one, and that is to say that there's nothing really that's uh, infallible in the world. And believe it or not, that includes Fred Rogers. <laughs> and so I want to hold that Rogers is both saint and sinner. And, and I do this, and I want to emphasize this, especially now, because the documentary really depicted him in saint-like fashion. And I have a sense that the film is going to do the same thing. And I don't want Rogers to be on a high, a really high pedestal that we just uh, can't reach. I don't want him to attain godlike status. Uh, first, because he doesn't deserve it, and he would say the same. But second, because he is so, uh, he is such a good person to emulate, such a good person to imitate, such a good person to model. And my concern is that if we give him or ascribe to him godlike qualities, he'll move beyond our ability to model him. It's just not true. You know, Rogers had his faults. He really did. And I can talk about them later, but I deal with some of them in my book. And one of them is uh, an inability, I think, maybe, or an unwillingness to uh, deal with the material needs of his staff. Rogers came from a very wealthy background. He was out of touch with the material needs of his staff. And I think they felt that acutely. Uh, I think that he was also, in many ways, a control freak. Uh, he didn't give a lot of, uh, he didn't allow his staff to have the type of input that was treasured. Uh, certainly he heard what they had to say, but he really didn't uh, take it on and, and embody it and enact it into the program. Um, in many ways, I think that uh, Rogers had an inability to reveal himself as he, as much as he saw it uh, from others. Uh, I think he hid a uh, large part of himself from the public, and maybe he did that out of uh, fear of uh, that we wouldn't accept him. I don't know. I really don't know. But he had his faults, and it's problematic when we don't consider those. It really is. Rogers was really good at talking about his own humanity. And when we ignore that point, uh, we do him a grave injustice. Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian. He was. And in that sense, recognized his own frailty, his own weaknesses. But we don't do the same. And my fear is that the movie will do will continue to ascribe like all these to Rogers just documentary did. And uh, that's problematic. On the other hand, very great that the documentary has really uh, encouraged us to revisit. It's encouraged us to revisit Rogers as somebody uh, who was really virtuous in his deals with children. And I hope the film will do the same. So that's my general feedback. I appreciate that. Um, my, my fear is, my, to speak personally, my fear that I have is kind of similar to the fear of the, uh, the movie that I had, didn't see and refused to see and had no interest in seeing, which was the Tolkien uh, bioepic. Um, and so the sort, of, the sort of stripping of the politics of the care of the person as well as the, um, uh, 
well as well as the um the theological aspects of him uh because tolkien as we know is a deep was a deeply political or deeply well at least theological figure um and and the movie the movie kind of stripped that as being as being something that in no way affected his work and so the 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 concern i have for this movie is that it'll do the same thing yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, or, uh, will the movie take Rogers out of his own individual context and make him appear as if somebody who's not really connected deeply to his Christian beliefs? I suspect, but I'm not sure, and I'll be delighted surprised if that's not the case. I think the documentary uh, did not take as deeply into Rogers' Christian could have and might have, and I wish it had. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting thing to look for. I don't know what will happen. But you cannot understand Fred Rogers unless you see him as an ordained Christian minister. It's, it's impossible to understand Rogers in any deep level unless you see that. And uh, this is a guy whose starting point was that Jesus was the peacemaker, that Jesus was the prince of peace, and that the followers of Jesus are called to be peacemakers. And that was really his starting point in life. And he tried to enact that uh, every day and certainly throughout his program. Uh, you know, you, can, you have to dig hard to find uh, Roger saying anything religious in his program. Once in a while he does, uh, but you have to really dig hard. Uh, but you don't have to dig very much to make those connections between his religious principles, his Christian principles and what he was teaching on his show. I always, I always find that interesting in conversations that I've had with people recently is the, um, the seeming desire, um, I, I might phrase it as, a, as the, the, the secularization desire to say things like, um, you know, the only, the only moral person, the only person who should be making decisions are people who are not religious or people who think reasonably or uh, conceptions like that, forgetting that our, our theology, our conception, conception of morality, our conception of ethics is what makes us who we are. Uh, and the two really can't be uh, disconnected. And another example of that I think of is Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that, that it's impossible to to withdraw the the political figure of Martin Luther King Jr. from the theological figure of Martin Luther King Jr. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's clear. Uh, he was first and foremost, he said, these are almost words verbatim, I am first and foremost a black uh, preacher. Uh, you can't understand King unless you understand as a black Baptist minister from the South in the 1950s and 1960s. That's who he was primarily. And he was a, an excellent civil rights figure. And he was so because he was a black Baptist minister from the South. And I think you can say the same thing about uh, Rogers. You, if you want to understand Rogers, you have to see him as a white ordained Presbyterian from the Pittsburgh area in the 1960s and 1970s and, and forward. Uh, yeah, you also have to see him as a man of his own time. He really was. And you can see this especially in the way he, tre he treated issues of gender and sexuality. Uh, he had a person on his staff, Francois Clemens, who played Officer Clemens, who was, as, who was pretty openly gay. 
1968 and 1969. I say pretty because he sort of went to he went out to bars that were gay, and, and Rogers didn't react to that positively. He really didn't. He, in fact, he threatened to uh, put Clemens off the show if he continued to live uh, publicly as a gay man. And Rogers, I think, feared uh, that news about Clemens would get out to his more conservative viewers, and that would tank the show. So Rogers is also a man of his time, and it's important for us to see that. Nevertheless, he really pushed his time as well. I think in terms of his treatment of women, uh, he was far ahead of most of us in the way that he saw women as equal partners. In fact, he one of his favorite puppets was Lady Elaine Fairchild, and he used her to advance uh, his support for feminism. Uh, he used Lady Elaine Fairchild to fly to Purple Planet, uh, 14 years, I believe, before Sally Ride became the first astronaut in the United States, before Barbara Walters became the first female anchor in the United States. Uh, Rogers had his female puppet, Lady Elaine Fairchild, anchoring a news program. So he also pushed his time as well. Uh, I like to think of him as a man of his time, but also a man ahead of his time as well. And, you know, it, it is important to see Rogers as a male. It really is. And in his early work, you can see him uh, bumping up against gender uh, boundaries. You know, here's Rogers in the 1960s, time when most men who were in families were the head of their families, were going out to work, weren't around during the day, and they were coming out at night. Rogers is coming into uh, the homes of children in the middle of the day. And not only is he appearing there when many fathers are out about working, but he's also saying, hey, I want to be your friend. That's incredibly radical in 1968. And not only is he doing that, but in some episodes, he's wearing an apron, for goodness sake. He's ironing. He's baking. He's cooking. He's washing. He's doing all of these tasks that are traditionally associated with women in the home. So he's really bumping up against gender issues as well. Absolutely radical for the late 1960s on television in children's programming. I would say so. The other, the other example that I think of um, is, uh, was it, correct me if I'm wrong, when he, he was in the, when he was washing uh, Officer Clemens feet in the, in the pool, in the kiddie pool in one episode? Yes, sir. Rogers was a thoroughgoing integrationist. Mm. He really right. was. He brought Clemens on board in 1968, long after the assassination of Dr. King. At this point, uh, countless enemies are flooding U.S. homes through the television, images of African Americans on the streets rioting, especially after the assassination of Dr. King. There are uprisings in over 100 cities throughout the United States after April 4th, 1968. And Rogers takes that moment and he decides that he's going to present to children a radically different image. And the image is one of an African-American keeping 
the neighborhood of make-believe and the neighborhood of Mr. Rogers safe. He does this by bringing Francois Clemens on as Officer Clemens. Officer Clemens becomes a police officer, really a peace officer. He doesn't carry a gun, and usually he's singing. <laughs> so he's a very friendly officer. But he brings the black officer onto the program. It's incredibly radical in 1968. He does that in August 1968. And then not long after that, uh, he and Officer Clemens uh, sit together next to a waiting pool, and there uh, they soak their feet together. And you can it's a really a powerful image. There's an image of Roger's pasty white feet next to Officer Clemens' uh, darker feet. It's just really powerful. It's, a, it's an image of uh, thoroughgoing integrationism. It really is, and that's who Rogers was. Right, and the, and the reason I bring that up is, um, yeah, it goes back to that earlier, the earlier the ability to divide his faith from his uh, persona. Um, yeah, many people connect that image to uh, Jesus also drying the feet of his disciples, or washing the feet of his disciples. And Rogers never did that explicitly, heard about that explicitly, as far as I know, in those terms, but I think it's a connection. Ethan, I saw there was something you wanted to add. I mean, I, I'm just kind of reflecting on, on the whole conversation. The, the question that I have a question that are kind of maybe connected more. Um, to how we can kind of talk about Christian peacemaking and nonviolence. And well, well, you know what? Well, I could even put nonviolence aside just for a second and just think about Christian peacemaking uh, in, in sort of our era of Trump. Because <laughs> that's something that I, Dr. Long, one of the things that Corey and I do um, a lot now is we write a lot and we. Um, find ourselves uh, talking a lot in uh, church and, and with other um, folks in the communities that, that we serve in just about um, what it now uh, what it now might mean for us to talk about our faith in a public way and, and talk about our faith in a political way now that things, um, at least from my memory of being 28 years old, are just different, like uh, or fee, or at least feel different. That the way faith is used is is you know in in the public square has changed, or the way um, religion uh, and religious language is used has changed. And so the first question I have that I, I wonder if you if you've thought about, and I'm sure you have, is are there any voices like Fred Rogers uh, now in kind of this era? <laughs> Uh, maybe you and Corey. Oh, <laughs> oh well, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes, I think there are uh, lots of peacemakers. I don't think any really have the uh, stature uh, that certainly the president has, or, or at least the platform president has. I don't think a peacemaker about King, uh, for example. I don't think we have a peacemaker on television in either. I can't think of it, actually. Uh, but there are peacemakers all over in all of our communities and, and, and as community leaders. And I think that's really important. We have to remember, if we're going to continue to talk about Fred Rogers here, is that he showed us what a neighborhood looked like, right? Or what a neighborhood could look like. And so what he's doing on his program, Ethan and Corey, is creating an, an alternative political society, an alternative policy, an alternative neighborhood. 
perhaps, to the ones that we live in. He's, he's telling us that we can build in our own lives these small neighborhoods where peace and justice reign. And so that's within our power as local community leaders. You can do that. Uh, by, you can do that. You can create a neighborhood of make-believe in your own lives. And I think that's a really important message from Rogers. We don't need uh, huge figures like Rogers or like Dr. King uh, to lead us in this time. We can do it ourselves in our own community. So I do want to point uh, that out. Another thing that's really important when we look at Rogers in the Trump era is this, uh, and it's a point about bullying. And I know, Ethan, you didn't go there, but I want to go there for a second. Maybe we can circle back to talk about your bigger concerns. Uh, but when Rogers was a small child in elementary school, he was overweight, self-admittedly overweight, and self-described as overweight. And uh, one day he was uh, being let out of school early. And he was usually chauffeured home from school by a young African-American man named George Allen. And the Rogers family was wealthy, the wealthiest family in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. And this was during the Lindbergh era, and the, uh, Charles Lindbergh's baby was kidnapped, and wealthy parents across America were fearing that their children would be kidnapped too. And so they had young Fred chauffeured to and from school. And on this particular day, he's let out early. And he's concerned because the chauffeur's not there. So, But he decides that he's going to walk home. And on the walk home, he realizes that there's some uh, a group of kids following him. They're following him closely. And these are kids who have traditionally, historically picked on Fred, and he knows that. And they start to yell at him, hey, Fat Freddy. They called him Fat Freddy. And uh, he starts to speed up, and he runs, and he even takes off, uh, dashing for his home. And they tell him, we're going to get you, Fat Freddy, and they're yelling this. And he's freaking out, and finally he spots his neighbor's home that's open. He runs up, he knocks on the door, and his neighbor lets him in. And he's finally safe. And the adults at that point in his life say, don't mind those children, Fred. And he grows to resent that advice. He resents that advice because he felt resentment toward those kids, and he wanted the freedom to feel that resentment. And he felt resentment toward those kids because they couldn't see who he was in his essence, as he put this later, as he reflected on this incident later. And what they couldn't see is that beyond his fatness, as he put this, beyond my fatness, was my essence, and who I was in my essence was somebody who was lovable and capable of loving. And so Rogers connects this later in his life to the Little Prince as he reads it, and his favorite line in The Little Prince is this, what is most essential is invisible to the eye. What is most essential is invisible to the eye. For Rogers, that essence in each of us is that we are lovable, and capable of loving. And Rogers resented those bullies for being unable and unwilling to see lovable and capable of loving. And he takes that childhood incident, Ethan, and he devotes his entire adulthood years to creating a neighborhood where people see one another's essence where we can see one another, all of us, 
as lovable and capable of loving. No matter who we have been, no matter what we have done, no matter where we come from, no matter the color of our skin, no matter any of that, each of us, he tells us, Rogers tells us again and again, is lovable and capable of loving. That message is what Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is all about. And Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is the antithesis to the message that we get from the Trump administration and from, especially from President Trump on issues as they relate to women, race, peace, bullying, all of that is contrary and undermining of the message that we get from Fred Rogers and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. If there's a bully in the United States right now that many of us know, it's President Trump. Fred Rogers is the direct antithesis of President Trump. That's powerful. Thank you. <laughs> well, so that, that actually is an incredible segue, Dr. Long, into the question that I had actually kind of in my mind since 2016. Um, so I went to seminary with Corey, and I also went to seminary with uh, Nick and Angie, who are also former students of yours. Mm-hmm. And and the three of us, Nick, Angie, and I have, have often said, you know, wondered. Uh, I wonder how a, a Mike Long class, a Dr. Long class, uh, change or might change in the Trump era. And and so this this isn't really a question that's about Fred Rogers, but it's a question that I, I kind of have for you, which is, um, has there been, have you noticed a, a change in the way you have taught uh, the material that you teach? You, you taught me classes on uh, Jesus and the moral life. You taught me classes on on how to to make peace, and and we worked with thinkers like Thich Nhat Hanh and and other folks like that. And then my last class with you was religion and violence, and 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 I think about, and, and I remember them all very well. <laughs> like like I I remember your approach and the way the way you taught me and and us. And I wonder if you have noticed any substantial change in that now that we live in this era. Oh, wow. That's a great question. First, let me begin by saying I really loved having you and Nick and Angie in my classes, and I'm glad that you remember them. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, A couple of changes, I think. Uh, Usually, as you'll remember, I try to use a Socratic method in the class, and so I'll try to draw out the lessons uh, that I want to emphasize for the day by asking questions of my students. And I still do that. Uh, I still use the Socratic method, and I still use that every day in class. But I think I'm a bit more pointed in drawing out certain lessons rather than others. And I do that especially even by going to uh, current events much more than I used to. And so on many days, I'll begin class by going to the newspapers or by going to items that I've uh, seen online, and then I'll connect those to the lessons for the day. But I try to address the horrific policies of the Trump administration directly, and I try to do it 
and conversation with the material, probably much more directly than I did uh, with other administrations and with other policies when you were in class. I just feel the need to not be as neutral in the classroom as I was at one point. Uh, I think I tried, I definitely feel an urgency to address what I consider to be fascistic beliefs in the classroom in more ways than I ever have. Uh, it's just a vocation that I feel now that I didn't feel before. I know that I've also felt that uh, sense of feeling more vocal. Um, it's it's difficult some weeks. <laughs> it's difficult some weeks. I say this partially in jest uh, to not just stand up when I'm preaching a sermon and just start screaming um, because of because of what's going on in the world. Um, there there's a line in uh, you know I I want I want to start this by saying I I detest God deputies. I think they're a sign of everything that's wrong with Christianity. Uh, but there's a, a line in the third movie that I actually thought was kind of poignant, um, in which one of the characters laments saying, um, everybody knows what the church is against these days, but nobody knows what the church is for. Um, and and I try I try to do a better job of, of emphasizing that, of speaking more towards what we should be emphasizing, of what we should be uh, uh, vocal for rather than merely what we're vocal against. And it's, it's, always, it's always a back and forth. It's always a struggle. Um, I know, as Ethan said, that we are both, um, we're both writing more and we're both blogging together. We share, we share a blog together. Um, and one of the things that I always work to be intentional about, and I always work to encourage him, Ethan, to be intentional about, is um, being sure that at, no matter what it is that we're talking about, at the end of every uh, blog post, there's a so what. There's a, there's a what do we do now um, section. In that no matter how much we feel like uh, lamenting um, the, the Trump administration, there is a, okay, so what is it that we can do actually, practically, in our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I, I, I'm a big fan of deconstructing things. There's no doubt about that. But that only gets us so far, right? And so uh, it's one thing to tear down somebody else's neighborhood, but it's a completely different thing to, to build our own neighborhoods. And that's what Rogers does. I mean, he doesn't spend any time deconstructing other people's neighborhoods. He spends his entire time building his own neighborhood, make believe, and his own neighborhood on the on the TV program. So that's what I really appreciate about Rogers. He is so constructive, so positive, so moving forward, so into direct application, and. He does this again by modeling, and I think that's one of the best ways we can do. Sure, we can uh, rant and rave, as I do. There's no doubt about that. But I think one of the best things that uh, we can do is to model through our own behavior. Uh, one of the things I wanted to point out, Corey, that you raised, though, subtly, is the issue of unity. You know, it's difficult to be a minister, I would think, because you have so many different people in your uh, parishes, and they come from different political uh, sides and spectrum is, as I remember, the United Methodist Church is really wide and broad. And the United Methodist Church excels at talking about unity. And well, after all, it's the United Methodist Church, right? And the problem with that is that 
a focus on unity can sometimes, can often lead to a sacrifice of principle. And it's important for us to stay together. I think that's very important, but it's never important for us to stay together when we sacrifice what really should be bringing us together. And I think the church, the United Methodist Church, is struggling with that in terms of issues of sexuality and gender now. And I hate to see, if I can just put in my two cents here, I hate to see, um, I hate to see my colleagues in the LGBTQ community sacrificed on the high order of unity, uh, not only in the United Methodist Church, but in most other denominations. And, you know, Rogers did some of that in his own life. I think he faced uh, some people who wanted to do different things on his programs on the high altar of trying to have a mass appeal to his audience. And those are always dangerous negotiations that we get into. And it's, it's problematic when we compromise our beliefs uh, for the sake of keeping people together. Um, I, it's, it's wonderful to have a church picnic. It really is an act as, and it's problematic when we do that while sacrificing others along the way. I know that's one of the things that I always have to reflect on and always end up uh, thinking about something. I would much rather see, I would much rather see a faithful church that's small than an, than an unfaithful mm -hmm. but united church that is all-encompassing. Um, in yeah. the sense that, as, as you said, trotting over people for the sake of unity, for the sake of not stepping on anybody's toes, regardless of, you know, the least of these who so often are the ones who end up getting stepped on. Right. Yes, yeah, those are the ones who, always, who are always left behind, the ones on the margins, right? So what happens when we push for unity, you just sort of push them off the edge of the margins. They're not even on the margins anymore. And that's... I, I had the opportunity, and I, I'm kind of bringing this up every, every episode now, um, a few, like a month ago, of serving at a uh, camp for LGBTQ plus teens. Uh, that's one of the first, one of the only Christian camp of its sorts, um, that, uh, to the point where some of the kids were, were kind of the, uh, the test subjects for some other kids in their community who thought it was actually secretly a conversion camp. Um, but, but it's, it's that there's this narrative in the church, there's this narrative in the Methodist church that none of this, none of our stance on the, the issue, the lifestyle actually matters, um, that it's all sort of pomp and circumstance. Um, and then I go to this camp and I talk with the kids and I hear stories um, that, that kind of prove that all the horror stories that we hear are true, uh, and in some cases worse than we think. Um, and suddenly, kind of to to pull it back to Mr. Rogers, to pull it back to Fred Rogers, it's the realization that um, seeing the essence of a person, uh, hearing hearing the voice of a kid, hearing the voice of a child, hearing the voices of a teenager, um, and and seeing them as not just a kid who hasn't put it all together yet, but as a as a valid human being in and of themselves. Um, as someone with a with a voice and with a conscious uh, consciousness and with a with a presence um, that we we can't just ignore. 
Yeah, I like that. Uh, often people in the church see others as objects to be judged, right? Um, and I'm always struck by Rogers in the sense that he treated children not only as objects to be molded, as we all do, but he also saw them as conversation partners. And he's directly talking to children directly talking to children, hoping that they'll talk back to him. They're conversational partners. It's amazing. And they're friends. Uh, and that's the way that we should treat everybody, no matter their sexual orientation, right? And one of the things that Rogers was really good about emphasizing as well is personal authenticity. You know, being open to ourselves, uh, openly expressing who we are. And in fact, as you were talking, I was thinking that one of the things that Christians really like about God sometimes is that God knows them uh, deeply. And, and I'm always struck by that because, well, that's dangerous when somebody knows us deeply it? In, our, in, in, the, in our deepest uh, moments, in the deepest recesses of our heart. But that's what we really like. That's what we long for. We long for belonging to another. We long for communing with another. We long to be with somebody to whom we can reveal ourselves in our deepest way. And that's what Rogers really encouraged. Uh, he encouraged self-revelation, and he encouraged radical acceptance of the other, no matter who the other was. That other was lovable and capable of loving, no matter who they were, where they came from, what they did. It was all about, it was all about authenticity. I mean, if I'm thinking about how to wrap his views up, it would be like a, a Christian theology of, Authenticity and acceptance. Amen. Mm -hmm. There you go. Authenticity. And well, actually, actually, that that kind of spurs me, Ethan, to respond to one of your earlier questions of who is who is the Mister Rogers today. Um, and and I don't uh, this this I don't I don't think this totally holds true, but I think we have on television at least is the the the, the cast of Queer Eye. Um, mm. to, to kind of go back to that, uh, that, that sense of loving someone, but not just loving the idea of someone, which we're very good at doing that. We're very good at loving the idea of someone. Uh, what is difficult is loving the person, loving the actual human being, uh, and not just the idea. Well, that makes me want to watch the show. <laughs> I haven't watched the show, so I'm glad to hear that. I'll mm -hmm. check it out. Um... Yeah, so so one of the I guess kind of wrapping com, coming up on the end of this conversation because as I said we're going to keep it to about an hour. Um, one of the things I I always appreciate about Fred Rogers about going back and watching him and, and reading this book um, and hopefully hopefully seeing the movie um, is is the 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 practicalness. Uh, the practicality of him, the practicality of what he says and his wisdom and uh, that it's not so much pie in the sky, uh, everything is perfect. It's more so this sense of, well, life is hard. Uh, things are difficult, but, but these, this is the, it's not so much the, the pie in the sky, everything is perfect. It's more so the, the this is how we do it in the world that we live in. Yeah, we have this view of Rogers as a sunny optimist, and clearly there's that part about him, but there's also this part where he recognizes that his viewers have limitations and have a limited vision 
and have limited abilities. And for goodness sake, that's why he has his program. His critics have belittled him for being a type of person who says everybody gets a trophy. <laughs> uh, and maybe Rogers was that way because he practiced radical acceptance. But as he did that, he also encouraged us to grow together. This is a man who saw that the world had real problems with diversity, with, with racism, uh, with violence, uh, with uh, sexism. He recognized all that, and that's why he formed these programs so that we could grow. Yes, it's important for us to accept one another as we are, exactly as we are. That's the radical message that we get from Rogers, but we can never forget his other equally radical message, and that is, yes, now let's grow together. Dr. Long, I think that of the things that this book and that your um, teaching of me and, and my experience in your classes has, has really kind of encouraged me and taught me is that we are very much in this together. You know, as things, as, as our culture and our society kind of um, reveals, maybe reveals its true self for the first time to us in a, in a big way. Maybe, maybe in many ways, maybe the Trump era isn't a change. Maybe it's just a self-revelation. Um, I don't know. Um, I think I'm always sort of looking for, as a pastor and as just a human being, how I can create spaces or help to create spaces where uh, human beings can flourish, where where as human beings, not as machines or, or um, political constituents or, you know, whatever, but as human beings. And for me, this book, Fred Rogers, um, the way you have taught, you know, me how to think about uh, religion in social and public spaces and things like that um, shows me that we do that is by recognizing that um, we are sort of responsible for creating this public good together. We're responsible for, for creating the neighborhood now, as you said. And that is really um, inspiring because I, and, and the big, the main reason why it inspires me is I, my brain naturally wants to go to, all right, well, how do we, um, how do we remake it all? Like, how do we, how do we uh, step into uh, politics or into whatever? And we, and we just craft it, recraft everything from the, from uh, the top down. But, what Fred Rogers offers is is that alternative politic, right? That alternative policy, as you said, and maybe that is the place that um, Christian people, the church, and just anybody can start with in the Trump era. Yes, uh, you can't understand Mr. Rogers, right, without looking at Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Yes. You can't understand Mr. Rogers' neighborhood without looking at the neighborhood of make-believe. 
That's where it starts and falls for Rogers, a neighborhood of people committed to peace and justice. You know, as you were talking about the Trump administration, I also found myself thinking, if I were in Donald Trump's life, what would it mean for me to try to accept him just as he was, exactly as he was? And what does it mean for me as somebody who's a citizen of the United States? to accept our president exactly as he was. What does it mean to practice radical acceptance in terms of how I look at or react to the president? And quite frankly, I have to let you answer that. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna, no, you, oh, sorry, you go ahead, jumping in. If you, if you were to ever read half of the stuff that Corey and I write blog, yeah. You would know that we have no way right. of answering. <laughs> the, the best we, the best attempt we've made is just trying to trying to refer to like purely refer to him as Donald as opposed to Mr. Trump or President Trump or Donald Trump, as a way to at the very least remind ourselves that there's a human in there. Um, and it's, I mean, if Rogers were here, he would remind us that the president is lovable and capable of loving and that is that shows you doesn't it how radical his mm. thought is somebody like me who's to the far left of bernie sanders <laughs> uh really radical that's a radical and really difficult message to embody let alone in that mm. Mm. So I guess with the one of the closing questions one of the last the, the final question that i'll ask you is kind of I would say a lighter one. Um, and it's, if there's one episode, or, or let's say a few episodes, uh, because it's always difficult to narrow it down to one. Um, if there are a few episodes of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that you would say everybody should watch, uh, what would they be? Well, I think I'd point you directly to the 19, 1983 episodes on conflict. Uh, those, that week of programming is the best programming I think that Rogers ever did. And believe me, I've watched tons of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, but that programming week is exceptional. It's exceptional not only because it deals with the nuclear arms race, which is, which is still baffling to me that Rogers devoted a week of programming to, to the nuclear arms race, but also just to basic decency. The programming week is about how to transform conflict and how to deal with it constructively in ways that don't hurt ourselves and others. Uh, that it's just absolutely brilliant. I love it. So start there. And then I would probably go to some of the episodes with Lady Elaine Fairchild and the ways that he, Rogers, deals with sexism today. Yeah, those are my favorite episodes. Wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, yeah. My pleasure. Thank you. This, thank is, you. this is in some ways one of my favorite conversations that I've had on this show. Um, and, yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you for agreeing to do this. And uh, when the movie when the movie comes out in a few months, uh, maybe we'll have to do it again. I don't know. Um, yes, uh, I hope we can. I hope we can talk again at some point about some other topic. But yes, it's, it's been when, great being in your neighborhood.
Oh, it's it's very good. When Corey uh, Corey sent me a text yesterday, Doctor Long, and he said, "What are you doing at noon tomorrow?" And I'm like, and I'm like, I don't know why. And he goes, "Do you want to interview Doctor Long, like Mike Long, with me?" And I sat there and I was like, "Oh, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can do that." <laughs> and so, but I'm glad I I'm glad we're here. This was really great. He he had a. Yeah, and it's so good to hear you. Tell Nick and then tell Angie I said hi, if you would, and that I miss all of you and I love you. I, oh, dear. I, I, think, I, I think I made a okay. comment, Ethan, yesterday about um, uh, sitting down with – or being able to sit down with you and talk to you in person will be kind of like uh, kind of like what Disney has done with the Star Wars um, schools of – you know, I heard all these legends about um, about you, and uh-huh. suddenly, like, this is what actually happened, for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> Believe me, I'm less human than you guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Corey. Hey, thanks for listening to the Open Pew Podcast. If you enjoyed the Open Pew, you should check out our network, DisruptiveDisciples.com. That's DisruptiveDisciples.com. Want to get involved? Well, you can drop us a line on Anchor. Leave us a voicemail and you might be included in a future show. We would love hearing from you.